Today's episode of The Thriller Zone with David Temple is sponsored by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller. Hello and welcome to The Thriller Zone. I'm your host, David Temple. Welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for supporting this podcast. It is listeners like you that make this job so enjoyable. I know that I love doing my job, and I love even more knowing that you're enjoying it. Great big old thank you for that. Now, in today's show, I have been wanting to talk to this guy for some time. I don't know why. I guess, and I hadn't even read his books prior to this conversation, but I knew of him. I knew of his reputation. Um, I also knew about his uh, uh, mutual admiration for a particular company who built his website that you're going to hear about inside the show today. We share the same web host, authorbytes.com. And uh, so I knew of him, but um, then I picked up the book Cold Snap. Mark Cameron is my guest today. And uh, boy, like you'll hear in the show, he describes cold like nobody's business, and he knows all about it because he lives in Alaska, where they know uh, more than a little bit about cold. <laughs> so let me start uh, flapping my gums, and let's just get on to it, because Mark is waiting in the green room right here on the Thriller Zone. Dad gum, you're a handsome man. Yeah, well, not encumbered by all that nice hair. That's what it is. <laughs> Mark Cameron, how are you, buddy? Better than I deserve. How are you doing? I'm so good. I'm, I'm, I've been so looking forward to this. I don't know what it is. I think because <laughs> I, I spend too much time stalking you on Twitter and watching that's, you fish and all that. That's hilarious. Hilarious. Watching my wife fish. I just I just hang out with a notepad and write in the background. That's a, that's a good job if you can get it, huh? Yeah. Yeah, no kidding. We're in a good spot for that. Tell me Where what are you the, coming from? Uh, dreadful, dreary San Diego. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Too bad. Feel for you. I was going to, actually, I'm going to bring this up later. Um, no, I'm, I'm going to save it for later. Cause I got a whole track of things to say, awesome. but yeah, San Diego is certainly part of the uh, conversation. What's the weather like, uh, in your neighborhood right now? You know, it's warming up. We've got, it's spring breakup, so it's dusty and muddy and a mixture of the two we still have little piles of snow outside but they're going away quick uh, my stepson is uh, stationed in fairbanks and he oh. he he just got up there not long ago and he said man these days are short <laughs> yeah we're getting longer longer and longer in fact we stepped outside last night about 11 o'clock to check and see if there was northern lights and it was still the sunset so we we just went to bed so yeah, we're getting longer and longer days right now. Fairbanks is a little, um, you know, they're towards the Arctic Circle. They actually have longer days than us as the summer wears on. Oh, who shorter, knew? Shorter in the winter, much shorter in the winter. And Northern Lights, I've, you know, I've seen it in photographs. I've seen it in videos, never seen it in person. Tell me what that looks like. You know, it depends on the night. We can, we've gone out in our driveway and, They've just been, you know, they're there one minute, gone the next, and you turn around and go inside, and the whole sky lights up green. It's, it's kind of like, you know, that that uh, 
green fog in the Ten Commandments that came around and killed all the firstborn. It's kind of it's kind of like that, all flowing around over overhead, except much bigger and brighter, and certainly happier. And uh, excuse the ignoramus here sitting across from you, but what does that come from? Uh, well, we're it's where all the sun, you know, the ionized particles from the sun are hitting the poles, and so you have it down um, the Australia Borealis and then or Borealis Australis I can't remember how they say it and then up here the Aurora Borealis um, I guess it's Aurora Australis is what it's called um, so just the light hitting the where the the poles magnetic poles come together and it's kind of energized so most of the time here we get green but when you have a really good night um, we happen to be down in Texas when they had the really good night a couple of, or about a week ago, but they had greens and reds and yellows and purples. And it's pretty uh, awe-inspiring when, you, when you're standing under it. Man, I bet. I can only imagine. Well, we are going to uh, get to Cold Snap here shortly. Uh, this was a heck of a ride. A uh, heck of a ride. Drops in one week. Uh, less than a week, actually. Book number four in the Arliss Cutter series. We're going to get to that. But uh, I, I want to drill down and get to know you a little bit better than I do. You know, everyone everyone knows the legendary Mark Cameron. So I want to, <laughs> for those who don't, we're going to drill on you. Um, so from so let's just do this real quick. So uh, let's see, from cop to mounted cop to uh, detective to U.S. Marshal. So I'm guessing with a background such as yours, I'd say you're pretty... Um, What's the word? I was going to say substantial, dude, meaning I doubt that there's little that spooks you. It would, would that be safe to say? <laughs> I thought you were saying with a background like that, I'm fat and old, but that, that's substantial. <laughs> that could be the same thing. No, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm pretty, uh, you know, I, I think I've seen a lot. And I, it's it's interesting because my both my sons have spent time in law enforcement, my oldest for about five years in federal law enforcement. He's a physician now. And then the youngest has been with Anchorage PD for about eight years. And they're both pretty uh, hard to ruffle guys. So yeah, it does that. So you sort of, you'd run out of, run out of surprises, but stuff still surprises me. Stuff still surprises me. You know, and being a writer uh, and with the imagination that you have, I would say that uh, uh, while not a lot surprises you, it's got to be constant great fodder, both pulling back on memories of the past as well as what you see around you for, for these books. I mean, you're a prolific writer. Yeah, that's the fun part. I think kind of hearkening back, my what I retired uh, from the Marshals in uh, 2012, in December of 2012, and the deputies that worked with me made me a really cool little um, picture book over the years. We spent a lot of time uh, out in Bush, Alaska, rural Alaska, and that was kind of my kind of my theme, if you will, while I was the chief deputy here. And so a lot of that kind of harkens back to villages in Western Alaska and far Northern Alaska and, and down on the islands in Southeast Alaska. So sometimes when I'm writing a cutter, which all take place here, I'll just go back and sort of flip through my memory book like a like a retired old dude and just remember back and then and then I go to my son and say hey can I hang out with you in the SWAT team and listen to the way people talk 10 years down the road you know so I get it both ways it's kind of fun that would be cool I, I can see how 
the the different this different span of time would create a slightly different dialogue, wouldn't it? Oh yeah, I mean, you go back and watch watch Hill Street Blues. Yeah, cops don't talk that way anymore. It's, if they do, they get laughed at by their cohort. You know, I mean, the the young people that I was hiring towards the end of my career were so much more well versed in in hunting bad guys electronically, where we used a lot of boot leather and really were on the ground. And they still do that, but just the you know the you know it's like your my grandkids know much more about iPads and the internet and computer technology than I do. So um, it's, it's a new, to get the vernacular right, you sure have to hang out with the, the crowd that you're writing about. That is so spot on. Um, you can, and you can always spot the folks. Uh, I'm certainly guilty of that in some of my earlier books. You can always spot the guys who's like, oh, you haven't actually been around that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> They don't really talk like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or on or one place or another. I, I was working the uh, protection detail at the United Nations General Assembly that Marshall Service will loan us to the State Department once in a while because we get trained in, you know, protecting federal judges and protected witness and whatnot. So uh, diplomatic security will borrow deputy marshals and then assign them to, I, I can't remember who I was on. I think I was on maybe India. I did uh, China. Um, these are all foreign ministers, so it'd be equivalent to our Secretary of State, uh, Egypt, Japan, uh, several trips I went out there. But I was, you know, standing at a urinal in the Waldorf Astoria, and this NYPD detective is doing his business next to me, and he kind of looked over and goes, what kind of Roscoe you got? And I thought, do, do we even say that word? What's a, Ro you know, a Roscoe? But, but to him, in 1980 five that meant sidearm i hope and so and so i uh, um we talked firearms and chatted and, and actually became friends this this nypd detective so i was able to glean some things from him over the years as far as writing yeah i had never heard that phrase for instance yeah i mean i don't think i think i read it in a mickey spillane novel or something but hey how's that rust on you shane <laughs> exactly you're packing heat you're packing heat belly, huh? Yeah. Come over here. What are exactly. you, some wisecracker, huh? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> hey, speaking of that, of all the gigs, did you have uh, a favorite of all those? I mean, what do you got, 30, how many years? Did I do the math? About, about, about uh, 28 total, 20, well, uh, 29, almost yeah. 30. Yeah, that's close, okay. Mm -hmm. well, did, you, did you have a favorite uh, uh, um, gig in all of that? Well, you know, as far as being a, I mean, being a, a deputy marshal was, was a dream from the time I was a kid. And I mean, I was the type of guy that in the, in the cutter books, I'm sort of imbue my, imbue Lolo with my giddiness when I was a new deputy. I taped my business card to my government car so I could see my name by the badge, you know, when I drive. And I mean, I was just eating up with it. And because in Texas, it's, it's kind of like Texas Rangers, you know, the, there's a lot of mystique and the marshals have not as much as a ranger, but a certain amount of swagger and gravitas. And so when I was a young police officer, when the U.S. Marshals came into town to hunt a fugitive, it was like, you know, the gods coming down from Mount Olympus to hang out with us a while. It, it wasn't that way by the time I got aboard. But when I was young, it was certainly a lot of that. So I really looked forward to that. But when it comes to people and dealing with the public and 
really fodder for being a writer. There's nothing that beats uniform patrol. I mean, you're just in the thick of it all the time and everybody you meet is unhappy, whether they're unhappy to see you or grateful that you're there, but unhappy about something else. And so you're constantly, you know, we, we used to, we, this is in 1984, 85, we would come in from shift and all huddle together around the, in the squad room as we were getting off shift and watch black and white reruns of, of Adam 12 and laugh, you know, I just, just, um, it's just a lot of that that goes on. People think that, that, uh, it's all gunplay, but it's social work. So much of it. Yeah. You get to learn people and, and that certainly translates into writing. And then, and then I, but I, to give a super long answer to a very simple question, my favorite part was mounted patrol. I loved being on patrol on the horse, um, talking to people, got in a foot pursuit one time on the horse after a shoplifter and nothing more relaxing than chasing somebody when you're sitting on the back of a horse. <laughs> nothing more relaxing than chasing for me, some, not, yeah, yeah. for me, not the, not the, yeah, not the bad guy. Oh, the bad guy was probably not digging that at all. No, yeah. Go far. Now on that same note, uh, can you recall, and this is just a reporter in me, I suppose the most dangerous, um, moment, something that you, you were in the middle of and you thought, Oh shit, I'm not sure I'm going to get out of this in one piece. Yeah. Several times I've, I've had some pretty hellacious fights. Um, you know, I, I always, when I would teach, um, defensive tactics and, or go talk to schools. I would always, I would always uh, ask the kids or the people there, how, how many have ever been in a fight? And, and even most, I wouldn't say most, but even many police officers that think they've been in a fight have actually only been in a violent struggle where the other person was trying to get away. And that's not a fight. The fight is when somebody turns back at you and says, I'm going to kill you and then get away. Yeah. And so um, a couple of those have been pretty intense. Um, you know, not, not to get into telling a bunch of war stories, but, but just a couple of fights. And then uh, I remember being in a, a, we had a trooper that was kidnapped in Texas and probably the most frightened, you know, it takes a while to be scared. Some, most of the time when you're in it, if somebody's got a gun and you're, you know, going to guns yourself and all that, there's no, time to really you're really trying to just take care of your buddies beside you and and say you know help people you know citizens civilians and um but the i think the most frightened i've ever been was this trooper was kidnapped during a, a stop there was a little shootout he ended up uh in a car that car wrecked out he flagged another car down this was before cell phones were ubiquitous and so when he finally was able to call us on a car phone he was back in his car with uh, um, or back in a civilian car, chasing his car on his cell phone, you know, a bag phone. This has been in 86, maybe. Uh -huh. um, another gunfight. I'm quarter mile away. So I end up in the pursuit. This guy chasing his car. Other troopers are, I'm a city, city kitty, if you will. I'm the baby of the group. I had about two years on. And we were, I was in a Dodge Diplomat or a Plymouth Grand Fury, I can't remember. Same car, and I drove them both, I can't remember. But I remember I was on Interstate 20, heading towards Fort Worth, just floating like I was on a hovercraft all over the road. And um, my 
I was going fast enough that the rate the, the dash mounted radar just started flashing because uh, the cars would go fast. They just had no control. And, you know, we had a trooper that was kidnapped. We didn't know what was going on. There was gunplay involved. And so we were just, everybody was just, you know, pedal to the middle. Wide open. And I think I was going probably about 130, 131. I think the car probably topped out then all over the road. And I remember thinking, and, and back then we didn't wear seatbelts. That was oh. not a, that was not a thing that you did. We, in fact, we argued with the, with the chief when he told us we, the law said we had to wear seatbelts. We're like, we'll kill ourselves getting out of the car. And I remember thinking, if I reach for my seatbelt, I might flip this car, but I got to get up there and save so-and-so. Uh, I could really die here today. So I definitely a seatbelt fan after that. Just pretty visceral fear. No doubt. I mean, a buck 30 in and of itself is one thing, but then with the car that you have little control and you're in pursuit and you don't know what's at the other end of the pursuit. Woo. Yeah, luckily, luckily it was Sunday mid morning in Texas where everybody was at church. So I 20 was pretty um, vacant. And back then the, the troopers were driving these Mustang pursuit vehicles that had, you know, do 140 plus, And Jeez. they were like slipping past me and, um, of course, I might have been so scared. I, I was so scared I may have started to ease off, the, go down to a more respectable 110 for a while, you know. You were serving up your own kind of church, weren't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you I, go. Got, I got my own gospel, and it's there called a 45. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, um, I wonder if now on that same kind of a line of thinking, uh, have you ever been in ex uh, hairy situations like Arliss in cold snap that, you know, because I mean, this, here's a guy who's just always seems to, he's going after trouble, kind of always in and around trouble. And I'm just wondering, ah, now Mark had to pull this from somewhere. Yeah. Alaska is one of those places that can, you, you know, Alaska is a character in these books and, and rightly so you, when you're here for just a few, and I, and I come from Texas, so it, it's, I mean, we have a, a t-shirt. I've been here 25 years and got a t-shirt with a little tiny picture of Texas. And it says, you know, pissing off Texas since 1959 with a giant Alaska beside it. Um, but I, you know, I'm, I'm from Texas, but Alaska has a way with, you know, the giant apex predators and, and even, even apex prey, like, like moose that'll stomp the pudding out of you. I'm, I'm way more fearful of, of moose. I've had moose get after me while I was serving warrants, you know, with a calf uh, in the city, just in the yard, uh, come after us. And you, you know, you're looking, you forget about the guy possibly with a gun inside and, you know, climb on a dumpster. Um, so, you know, Alaska, had, I've had that happen. I've, we've been in the extreme cold. I've uh, showed up out in Bush, Alaska and the the native folks out there would just look at what I was wearing and shake their heads and go get me some good stuff, you know, and, and consequently though, because I'd gone out there as a young deputy, uh, when I was able to, uh, start going back to headquarters and kind of carrying some water for the district about Bush, Alaska, they got us some incredible, you know, incredibly good gear, but just being out in the woods, we've had some times when we were, I got frostbite on my big toe out, looking for a guy one time and um you know things like that yeah 
You know, and, and this is a question I had written down to ask myself, and it's kind of been going through my mind since I've been following you. I'm like, and, and I'm not trying to be a smart ass, but I mean, why Alaska? What what took you from Texas, which is a its own world, to Alaska? Yeah, that's a good question. Books, books took me to Alaska. So uh, my aunt was a librarian the whole time I was growing up, and she would... Um, she lived in Salt Lake City, and so we would go. And my grandmother lived in Salt Lake, and, and we would go back and forth to the mountains. And I just love the mountains. And then, but when I was, I read um, Farley Mowat books when I was quite young. Two, there's a book called Two Against the North about uh, two teenage boys, like 14, 15, that get in a canoe wreck and end up in remote barren lands of Canada and have to spend the winter. And you know, they have one gun, a little hatchet. It's kind of like a little older version version of uh, Gary Paulson's hatchet. Um, then, of course, as I got older, I, I hatchet didn't come along till a little bit later when I was older. But I so I read Farley Mowat, who is a very prolific uh, North Canadian writer, um, and other you know books about families that lived in the north. And I, when I was about twelve, I um, you know maybe I guess younger than that, probably ten. I went in our backyard and I had my own gun when I was nine. I, we had a family farm and they, you know, I couldn't take any friends hunting with me, but me and me and the gun and my dog would go out and, you know, wander around our farm and hunt rabbits for the table and dove and quail and whatnot. So I was pretty, and, and then my sister would come out with me when we got a little bit older, but um, so I was kind of, I was already outdoors in it, but I went to our backyard when I read this Farley Mowat book and I, um, found a, so I was pretty young, 10, and I found a cottonwood root and I carved some Eskimo snow goggles to make sure I didn't go snow blind. And I'm sure my parents and all my friends thought I was a nut case because I'm in Texas and I'm wearing these wooden slit snow goggles uh, like I saw in National Geographic, you know, but right. I remember we had it, we went to the Texas, um, either the State Fair or the Fort Worth Fat Stock Show or one of those and the Yukon uh, Canadian Yukon had a, a booth there and they had maps and usually when you see a map of the Yukon it's Yukon Northwest Territories and Alaska all chunked into one right. and I remember sitting on the floor when I was in probably the sixth or seventh grade with my mom and just planning I'm going to go up there someday this is because it's wild it's wild I knew I wanted to be a, a policeman wanted, at that time I thought maybe I'd be an RCMP I really didn't Royal Canadian Mounted Police. I didn't understand borders that well, um, but ended up marrying a girl from Canada. So it was really easy to, to yeah. come this way. Yeah. You know, and uh, your life seems to be such a great reflection of your work. And the more I'm around heavy hitter authors like yourself, the more I'm aware of what the phrase, write what you know is about. When I first heard that phrase a couple of years back, I was like, well, what does that mean? And why, why wouldn't you write about stuff you didn't know? Because isn't that what having a great imagination is all about? And then as I have followed careers such as yourself, I go, oh, yeah, of course, because you back to an earlier comment we made, you are referencing and you're um, stacking upon what you have already spent your life working on. So it uh, it certainly helps to uh, feed your fictional work with this background. And I asked this of Don Bentley, also a Tom Clancy, Jack Reacher writer. And, and I go and I and I 
having never done this, I ask, and perhaps hopefully you can help me understand this. How does one go about getting into the mindset and the, the mindset and the voice, which is very specific in writing and, and writing as another person? Referencing you know, your Tom Clancy work. Yeah. So, so I was a Tom Clancy fan for years anyway. I, I can pretty much track my early law enforcement career by what Clancy was coming out at the time. For instance, you know, flying to that, uh, the United Nations thing I mentioned, uh, the General Assembly, I, I uh, was reading some of all fears and I, and I actually, I left the book on the plane and had to buy it again. So I remember I bought it twice. Um, when I was in the police academy, Hunt Fred October came out. So I've been a fan. And as I, you know, I sort of got those characters inside me and, and knew them from a long time ago as a you know, fan. So I, I consider what I write kind of fan fiction. I, I try to, now I, I told Tom Colgan, he's, a, he's an incredible editor um, with uh, Penguin Random House that handles the Clancy uh, franchise for the estate. And he, we had this chat early on and I, and I was just terrified. I was just scared to death. Um, in fact, it really kind of put me to my knees a little bit on the beach where I was when I called about it. Cause I had no idea it was coming. Oh, and wow. yeah, you don't, you don't really politic for that sort of thing that Mark Graney recommended me to Tom and, you know, showed him one of the book I was working on. And so my agent called and um, offered the, the gig and, but I called Tom and again, I was very scared because I was such a Clancy fan and I, uh, we came to a conclusion that really calmed me. And he said, you don't need to write Tom Clancy. You need to write a Mark Cameron book in the spirit of Tom Clancy. So just as, just as the uh, director of a movie might cast Alec Baldwin or Harrison Ford or Ben Affleck as Jack Ryan or John Krasinski, um, I cast my own character. That's, that's true to what I see, what Clancy had and, uh, I've been asked this before, but I, I actually uh, cast in my brain when I write Jack Ryan, I see Tim Daly, the, the husband yeah. on Madam Secretary, that very smart um, kind of professorial good guy, smartest yeah. guy in the room everywhere with his moral code that's just unbendable. So, but I would, I would go back really quick and, and speak to something you said about writing what you know. I think what makes that more important is that you don't write what you don't know. In other words, when I do, and Don, I've talked to Don Bentley about this and Mark Graney and, and a bunch of other writers, when we write and, and we do a ton of research, travel and whatnot, I might have five legal pads full of research when I come back from Argentina or Japan or, or San Antonio in the last book or, or for one of the cutters you know, out going out to the bush very little of it makes it into the book. But if I'm going to write about the Alaska Railroad, for instance, I can't put the wrong number of cars in. It's better I don't put anything. So when you're writing about police work, it's better to not make crap up. It's better to find out because uh, it's you can get away with leaving something out, but boy, you put something in that's wrong. And especially in the Clancy's, I, I think Clancy readers read with a TI-80 graphing calculator and check all my work while I'm writing. It is true, man. Hardcore. It's kind of like if you're reading uh, 
Jack Carr. There's another one if you're reading. It, you yeah. know, if, if he references a gun, you can take it to the bank that he knows exactly what he's talking about. No, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, and I try to make that with with fights and firearms and, and then, of course, law enforcement when I write. But, you know, you get to write. And then I got an email from a nuclear physicist a while back that correct like the books but he corrected me on a the half-life of some plutonium isotope and i said dude i'm just happy a nuclear physicist is reading my books <laughs> that's good that's real good um i was reading about your friendship with uh, i think his name is steve zamansky and was wondering if i were to eavesdrop on a conversation between you two I always love stuff like this. And what would I learn as it pertains to bringing an aircraft down? Because when I saw that phrase, I'm like, well, you just point down. I mean, and then I'm like, no, no, no. He means bringing it down. But what yeah. would that? So without, and a lot of times I will leave tiny bits and pieces of the recipe out. Cause I don't want to, you know, give a terrorist a throw a terrorist a bone, sure. but uh, I went to to Steve, he's a good friend of mine. His wife's a, a very good writer, um, but he worked on our Marshall Service airplane for for years. He's promoted now in the within the the government, but uh, worked on the Marshall Service plane. And so I would see him when we were going out to the bush or flying out, you know, somewhere in our aircraft. And so I would pick his brain. And I had this particular issue I was working on with one of the Jericho Quinn books, where I wanted them to be flying, you know, already in the air. And I wanted the bad guys to have already sabotaged the plane so that they would be over a remote area and then it would go down after the fact. So not a take, hostile takeover or whatever. And so I was amazed at how quickly he goes, oh, well, you just crimp the oil line and that'll show power. You know, that'll sh still show pressure and, and then it'll overheat and pretty soon your engine burns up and you all die. And I'm like, awesome. That's exactly what I need. So, you know, he, he knows it's one of those things. He knows what he knows and he can help me out. And then I can put in enough that somebody that knows that goes, oh, he knows what he's talking about, but not enough that, or, or that a layman can look at it and go, oh, wow, that, that could really work, I guess. Yeah. So that's kind of what we're looking for. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. He's a good dude. We'll be right back after this message from our new sponsor. Man, do I like coffee. And as much as I don't want to sound like a bean snob, I am. There I said it. I mean, once you've tried fresh roasted coffee, why would you settle for anything else, right? That's why I'm happy to announce a new sponsor to the Thriller Zone, Writer's Block Coffee. Why Writer's Block Coffee? Here's why. Super easy. The coffee is naturally processed, which means the way the coffee cherries are harvested uses much less water than the big brands. That benefits the environment and the economic and political stability of the places coffee's grown, such as Ethiopia, which is where they make their flagship writer's block coffee. Also, their coffee is specialty grade, which scores in the 80s on a scale of 1 to 100. That means the beans are in the top 5% of the world in terms of quality. Woo, I love this. They donate a percentage of their profits to an organization called First Book. It's a nonprofit that supports literacy with kids. It's a great cause that helps build the next generation of readers. And perhaps my favorite, their coffee is roasted to order. That means the beans do not sit on a shelf, but are roasted and shipped only after you order. 
might take a little bit longer, but I'll tell you something. You're going to smell the difference the minute you open your mailbox. And here is the winning round. Here's the tasty bonus. Order today and get 15% off your first order with the code THETHRILLERZONE. Try Writer's Block Coffee and taste the difference of roasted to order. You're listening to The Thriller Zone. And now, back to the show. Guys uh, with expertise uh, really do help things come alive, especially when you... Because it's one thing to go pick up a book and research, okay, how to crimp a line, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but it's different when a guy goes, oh, no, I got my hands in the belly of that beast all the yeah. time, so I know exactly what to do. No, exactly. I do the same thing with a uh, dear friend, Ty Cunningham, who's a martial artist and my martial arts sensei and, and a tracker. And um, when I'm, and, I, and I'm a second degree in jujitsu and been in plenty of fights, but there's many times when I'll say, you know, I've never been in a fight in an elevator. I'm going to call Ty and then we'll hammer out. And, and, you know, fortunately, I don't think he's been in a fight in an elevator either, but he's been in more than I have. And so we'll hammer out the dynamics, the strategy and dynamics. And more important than that in a book, how to write it. Because just like dialogue, you're, you're a writer, you know that dialogue isn't a script of real speech. It's a suggestion of it. And a fight scene in a book is the same way. If you wrote blow by blow and strike block by block yeah <clears throat> the reader would just skip over it which makes me think of that uh, um, uh yeah i guess it would be the closing scene the fight that takes place in that cabin uh the way you uh crafted that scene god i was like man that's that's the way i like to read a scene you know you got a gun this guy's chained up this guy's reaching for the gun Mm -hmm. this gal over here's got the hatchet and you know um i didn't need a step-by-step play-by-play because my mind as you know you can imagine as being a good writer i'm in that room i'm watching the melee uh happen Mm -hmm. and uh god those those are the best scenes ever I appreciate it. It, it, The really important thing and what I, it takes a long time to write, as you probably know, it takes a long time to write a page and a half of, of violence because you have to stick to the point of view. You can't pop into somebody's head here and pop into somebody's. And, and, you know, if you, I always think of violence in a book, like a car wreck. So you're only able to see what's rolling past your window, every rotation or spinning around. And so you just have to, trust the reader to fill in the blanks and that's the big thing i think i was gonna say trust the reader to fill in the blanks yeah uh i think early on uh and we probably all mark we probably all make this mistake hey he said she said he Mm -hmm. said he looked she picked up she and there's so much of that that i just go give give me some credit you know oh exactly my wife has a has a Dr. Seuss saying when she's looking at my stuff, that's kind of my warning. She'll say, do you like my hat? No, I do not like your hat. Goodbye. Goodbye. And I'm like, oh, okay. I see what's going on here. <laughs> exit, exit, exit. Yeah, that is so good. And, and you know, uh, our minds would probably go back to Elmore Leonard. What does he say? Leave out the stuff that bores skip people. Over. Yeah, yeah the people. Yeah. 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 <laughs> that's such pretty, good advice. Isn't it? Amazing. Well, you don't have to. We just want to, like I say, it's a suggestion of real dialogue and it always turns me off in a movie or on a, in a book when it's, how are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm fine. That's three lines. You just never had to put in there. 
they said, Hey, you know, yeah. Said hello. I, yeah. Or, or, uh, you know, Mark said, hello, David looked at him like he had just <laughs> sat on something. You know, I, I love those things. It's what, what right, is that? Right, right. Uh, show me. Don't tell me. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's way more fun to see stuff, you know, you know, and I try to, well, Elmore Leonard was a good one for just, I mean, he didn't say he didn't use adverbs very much at all. Um, he would say he never did, but I can find one or two, but he, he hardly ever used an adverb. Um, and, and really a reader's okay with just, he said, she said, but I like, you know, little tricks. Like if somebody touches their face or head, it means they're thinking. So you don't have to say, I don't need to go in or, you know, what am I going to do here? He thought you can just say, you know, he put his hand on his head. What am I going to do here? That's it. You know, little right. tricks like that, that you really learn from reading. Very few classes will line that out. You just read it and say, oh, look at what Ken Follett did here. Make a note, you know. Um, Alma Katsu is going to be on the show on Monday, and she and I were chatting this week, and um, she made a great point, and it has to do with reading and talking about reading a wide spectrum of material. In other words, don't read just thrillers. And it's we've all heard that, but for some reason, the way she said it, it took me out of the scene and I went, you know, that's a really good point because if you're always in the same genre constantly, there's a little bit of, well, you know, we're all doing the same thing, but if you go to a different genre and I'm not saying go to cozy romance, but I'm saying read other writers, you do pick up organically, automatically, subconsciously, a lot of things that you wouldn't ordinarily. Does that make sense? I, I think I think that's crucial. I, I read my friends, but I don't read them while I'm writing. Like I'm fortunate that I have a couple of different kinds of series. And so when I'm writing a a mystery or a you know an adventure story like Cutter, I don't read a C.J. Box. When I'm writing a Clancy or a Jericho Quinn, I don't read a Mark Graney, I or a Don Bentley or a Simon Gervais, I read CJ Box because I don't want to get derivative and it's right. so easy to get derivative. But even then, I read thrillers growing up. I don't read them so much now because it's, it's not up to us to write a political thriller. It's, a, it's up to us to write characters that do these things in this particular setting and the publishers and the bookstores put it in the political thriller so really we're writing a story about people and i i, I read or i watched years years ago there was a book called the bridges of madison county um, yeah. by um something robert james waller i may get his name wrong but i think yep. his name is waller um really thin book very much of a girl quote unquote you know chick read i say yeah. that you know, knowing that uh, make people mad, but um, back <laughs> then, uh, that's what I thought of it. I was probably I was a brand new deputy, and my wife, who's this really sweet church-going mom, I walked in the door from work. I was a brand new deputy, and she's chewing on the collar of her t-shirt, <laughs> bawling her head off. And I, I thought, well, what's wrong? She goes, she's not going to leave her husband and go with a guy. And I thought. Well, that seems like a good thing to me. Kind of blew it off, went about my business, was going down to the, the clerk's office in the federal building, taking some paperwork down. And it was lunchtime. So I unlocked the door, went in. And one of the clerks was there chewing on her blouse, crying, reading this book. I said, I've never 
go read that. If this book has that much effect on these people, then I need to go see what it's all about. And super well-written book, not my cup of tea, but super well-written book. Yeah. I think it's that way about all kinds. I read science fiction and fantasy and, and I read mostly, honestly, I read mostly nonfiction. I read um, everything Eric Larson writes because I love that he sends me to the dictionary, um, you know, like Splendid in the Vile and, and uh, historical uh, uh, books. Um, nonfiction. Yeah. I just, I think it's important to be learning all the time. And if I sat and just read thrillers, yeah, it would just be a giant echo chamber. And that's that. That's a really good point, Mark. And here's something else. I was uh, talking to my wife the other day. And uh, because of this show, I'm reading no less than two books a week. Oh, um, good on you. Well, yeah, I don't know that I can keep that up and write my own work and do the podcast and, mm -hmm. and, and. But um, my point is this. Sometimes when I get uh, on a real streak of uh, some darkness, I do find myself going, I need a little break from the darkness. You know, yeah. Yeah. I need to go back to use your reference earlier. I need to pick up a little cat in the hat and just uh, yeah, go play with the grandkids and go, that's a nice hat. Do you like my hat? Yeah, uh -huh. <laughs> that's yeah, a little. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. We'll I'll do that with TV because I don't watch much television. But yeah, I'll go take a break and watch a. You know, my wife and I. This is embarrassing, but we have a, one grandson that lives up here, and we like encourage him to watch Bluey, this little show about a, a Australian blue healer, which we've had many over the years. This little cartoon called Bluey. It's just so uplifting, and it takes. You know, go watch Bluey if you want to. I don't own any stock in it, but that solves the darkness. I, I keep a copy. It's probably in the other room, but I keep a copy of A River Runs Through It on my oh, desk. Yeah. yeah. And it it's what I use when I I get a book from somebody that says, could you please blurb this or whatever, you know, give me a quote. Um, and it it's not the book might not be particularly skillfully written. Um, and I need to sort of scrub my brain. Yeah, will, yeah, yeah. I will read. Or when I write something crappy and I read over it and think, man, I got to fix this. I'll read A River Runs Through It. And it just, it's like, it's like uh, salve. It's yeah. Incredibly soothing. You know, it's funny. Um, I wrote a book uh, a summer or two ago. Summer, I think it was last summer called Devour. And it's, it's, it's probably the, it's easily the darkest thing I've ever written. And I don't know what it was. I, my wife and I were taking a road trip and a, an idea popped into my head and I just ran with it for my 14 hour drive. So when I got home, I banged it out and it's super dark. And then here's the point. Uh, then the following Christmas, for some reason, uh, well, my, my mother was still alive. So no, it was a couple of Christmases ago. I sat down. I just wanted to re write a really sweet little Christmas story. Had never done it. Just wanted to see if I could do it. I got more rave reviews from that. And at the end of it, I thought, you know, it felt really good to write that. I didn't even publish it. It's just, I, I printed it out just mm -hmm. for family and I handed it out. And to the same point, I often think about going back and doing that. I think it's almost a cathartic cleansing uh, to, to, to devour, well, no, to read mm -hmm. books like that and, and just kind of cleanse your soul. Yeah, well, I agree. And I, and I, anybody that reads my books know that, for, for my dad's passed away, but anybody that reads my books knows that, and has heard me talk, knows that um, 
for years, my mom read my, my mother read my books to my dad out loud because he was blind. And so I did a lot of backspacing when I'm writing these horribly violent books. Like, ah, I don't want my mom to read that. Mostly it had to do with language because she was okay with the, you know, with the brutal people killing terrorism stuff. Yeah. But even with that, I'm the kind of guy that when I write a horribly dark section of the book, the good guys win. Now, there might be some good guys that get terribly hurt or even die along the way, but in the end, good prevails. And that's the only way I can get by. If I was writing a clockwork orange or something like that, I, yeah. I would not be able to sleep at night. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, this is a good place to ask this question. Um, uh, it's very obvious you've been at this a while. You've got a prolific uh, entourage of books to your credit. If you could go back and give your younger self a single piece of advice. This is just, this is life stuff. Knowing what you know now, what would you tell the young Mark? I'd tell, <laughs> I think I'd tell the young Mark the same thing I tell young or not young, but beginning writers or even established writers. Don't read your reviews. They, they matter not. It, it doesn't matter if they're all five star. It's like knowing your own IQ. If you, if you know you're super smart, you don't need anybody to tell you. And it just, you know, it, it puffs you up. And if you're, if this test says you're dumb, then you're inclined to believe it. And reviews are, you know, I, I read the, the um, like Publishers Weekly, you know, the industry reviews, but sure. Amazon, and I love it when people give me Amazon reviews. Um, I check to see how many I got and that they're coming in because that's sort of a, litmus test that people are still reading the book sure. but um and sometimes vicky my wife will say you got a really funny review like you know damn you mark cameron you left a cliffhanger again um, <laughs> um you know things like that but it just it, i see people and i, I don't want to speak i don't mean bad about this to other writers but i think it's 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 not a good habit to always point out what great reviews we're getting or, or revel in them like Scrooge McDuck with all his gold, you know, here I got these five star reviews. Cause I could get five stars, a hundred five star. I remember when I wrote the first Jericho, it got very nice reviews and I was reading them back then. Got really nice reviews for about 90 reviews. And they came in fast because in 2011, there weren't as many books on Amazon. And so, People were reading my little thriller. Mark Graney only had one book out at the time, maybe two um, of his own, and the clan, you know, and then Clan he was starting the Clancy's. Um, and then I and and I thought, oh, these are great. People love me. And then somebody wrote a scathing one star, and it gutted me for like a week. Yeah. And I was like, wow, they, they why does this guy hate me so bad? I don't know him. Why would he be so mean? Yeah. And over the years, I finally realized this is dumb. You're just wasting a lot of time reading reviews. Well, not only is it, it feeds the, it feeds something in your psyche that doesn't really need to be fed. Right. One way you or know, the other. We, one way or the other. Off. I mean, you think about, I, I would like to think that Robert Ludlum and, and, you know, the, the greats or Ken, uh, well, Ken Follett or, or oh. some of, some of the, some of them are still alive. Some of them have passed away, but the people that I read, I would like to think that they would 
just write their books. And I mean, I, I personally, I'm glad I love to chat with people like you about writing. Uh-huh. When I think about this being on social media, I cringe. I'm more of a private person. I like talking. I have to psych myself up and say, oh, I'm just talking here writing because um, I'm not much of a social media. I do it because I need to. Yeah. And but but then people will come up and and it's really. I'm going to I'm going to get hammered for saying this, but it's really kind of false. People will come up to me at book signings and they'll go, hey, Mark, what are you doing? I go, I'm, I'm doing well. And they look at me like I should know them. And I go, okay. And they say, it's, it's Jack. Okay. Hey, Jack. We talked three weeks ago for a long time. I don't remember that Jack on, you know, on, on, on uh, Facebook. I'm like, okay. I guess I don't, I just don't remember that at all. I don't remember that. Okay. Yeah. I remember that, that interaction. That was cool. That was great. And then we actually develop a relationship right there, but there wasn't a relationship before. Yeah. It was a couple of, of, you know, conversation bubbles on a screen. So yeah. here into the rant, I just, I, I'm just not that way. I think it's from 30 years of law enforcement and being very private and not talking about much. It's really hard for me to get out and, and uh, blab about myself and my books. So I'd much rather talk about writing than here, look at my cool five-star publishers weekly review, but I, I send them out. I I'm gutted every time I do it, but, but I do. All right. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll take some of that heat off of you and we'll just keep, uh, you know, it, it is funny though. Um, early on, I heard, uh, agents talk about, you have to have, what do they call it? Oh, you got to have a platform. And if you don't have a platform, yeah. ag- agents won't take you. And then I, I kind of bought into that for a while. And then I thought, you know, I'm just going to write the best damn book I can. And if it gets into the right hands, then that's the way it's supposed to be. I'm not trying to be Pollyanna, but uh, I have a, a very sincere um, mantra in that I dream it, I chase it, and I release it. Meaning, uh, you know, if, you if it's supposed to be, it will. And if it's not, then it won't. Mm-hmm. But not to be. Right. No, that's good. No, I think that's absolutely right. And you... There, there is a, I don't mean to come off as saying that there's no need for social media because in this day and age, it, there is a need. I mean, I, but I, I just got on Twitter a year ago. I yeah. went into it kicking and screaming. Um, I've been on Facebook a long time, but I use Facebook mostly to, you know, pe- people that I have to put out stuff now because the book's coming out, but mostly I talk about Alaska and my grandkids and, yeah. and hopefully give a, a little national geographic kind of look or, maybe a, you know, homestead kind of look to my readers to say, okay, this is what's going on in the background. Um, Because I'm human like everybody else. And if I post something, I want to get interaction and likes and whatnot. And I'll, I'll go and check my interactions when I should be writing. So it's a, it's a a hole you don't want to fall down if if you want to write. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. I, I'm not a, I'm not a Facebook fan because I find it just gobbles too much of my time. We're also having a little bit of a spotty reception. So I'm going to keep moving on the off chance that I I don't want to lose you because, man, I I got so much yet to. I mean, I'm going to kind of start wrapping it up here, but I want to make sure I. uh, Okay. Um, Now, I do. uh, I I wanted to mention this, and I meant to mention early on. Cold Snap, by the way, the book we're talking to here is uh, your sense of cold 
was kind of ridiculous. And I'm going to overstate. I'm being a little bit silly here, but mean, I had to practically wear a sweater when I was reading this book. And I think it's probably because I hate cold weather so much, which is why I asked you early on, why the hell Alaska, Mark? But mm -hmm. you're you and I'm me. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes I get tired of the constant sunshine in San Diego. But, <laughs> but your sense of cold uh, was so viscerally real. I was, I was all in. That's what I'm trying to say. I, I appreciate that. There's nothing like. Remember the the Jack uh, London story to build a fire. You remember that story? Um, the, no. A uh, I don't know if he's a trapper or what, but he he's out with his dog and he he's lost all his gear and he's freezing cold and it, it, there's something about you know, there's cold, there's uncomfortable cold. And then there's, when it gets below, say 20 below, then you just can't, when you're out there, you just, it's hard to keep enough clothes on and you, you're just, it just seeps through everything and 40 below and stuff starts to break. And if you touch something metal, you get a blister on your hands and, you know, and the coldest I've ever been is we think about 56 below the, the Fairbanks, um, bank sign said 56 below and we were out in the woods away so who knows maybe it was colder but but super still super cold um we had to we had vehicles with us we were at a cabin we were doing some training for tracking and and um it was so cold that we, we were worried about our batteries freezing up and there, we were in the woods so there's no place to plug in the car like if your son's in fairbanks you know it's you got to plug in your car at the grocery store or yeah. in in uh, the winter um, and so we would just, you know, drink a glass of, of water or lemonade or tea or whatever, a real big jug of that, and then go to sleep knowing that we we're going to wake up in 30 minutes to pee. And then we'd start our cars with the auto start and then drink a bunch more water and then go back to sleep. And then the auto start run for 15 minutes and just did that all night long because we were afraid we'd get stranded out there. So you learn about the cold and yeah. um, it's much easier to write about it. Now, the cool thing about the, the cool thing about writing these winter stories in Alaska, I see what many you did of there. Those are written in. Yeah, I see what I did there. Um, many of probably about half of those are written in the South Pacific on an island where my wife and I go. So I'm sitting in the sun writing about the cold, but it's it's uh, I remember it vividly. You know, the, I think the coldest I've been, and this is when I knew it was time to hang up my microphone in Chicago. I had a radio show in Chicago, and it was a winter that had hit 33 below, and I was and I was going to work at uh, 4.30 in the morning. So, you know, you're scraping the car, and you're trying to warm it up to get to the office. And I remember thinking, um, when I lost that job, I'm like, you know what? There's, there's my sign. I'm yeah. out of this. And I went to L.A., and the rest is history but uh no you're right there's a, there's something about there's something about cold and i think and i hope it comes across in the book that's way more mental than it is physical and it, like the i think the temperature that i was coldest was that time i just told you about but the coldest i've ever felt was about maybe 15 or 20 below snow caving with my oldest son when he was about nine and what kind of a dad takes their son out at nine and digs a hole in the snow and sleeps in it but we were adventurous i was young he was young we we're more yeah. like buddies than than father and son sometimes and i had i had my head out of the snow cave trying to light a little 
camp stove to cook some oatmeal. So our legs were inside and he was huddled down and, and we weren't far from the house. We were like on the back of the property, yeah. but I was really worried about him. It was super cold. I couldn't even hold the matches because of, of yeah. it was like to build a fire. I couldn't, you need to go back and read that. If you want to read about the cold, I couldn't even get the matches. And, and I remember being so cold and so worried about my son that I took some of the fuel and I sloshed it on top of the stove. Well, that's not a really smart thing to do. And so then I was finally able to get a spark from one of the matches and the whole stove just went up like a rocket. And fortunately for me, it didn't blow up in my face. It, it, uh, you know, burned like the tail end of a jet for a while and then yeah. settled down and I was able to reach over and turn it on. Just that, that crazy mindset of not thinking clearly is what, I think, I think you have to put that in a book about cold to make it work rather than just, you know, shivering teeth chatter and cold. Yeah. Well, when I got to that part where you're, when they were digging a, digging the snow cave, I'm like, what in the hell is he doing? And, um, that, uh, didn't sound a whole lot of fun. Um, and here, here's a random question. And, and, and this was one of those things when I read it, I went, Oh, I wonder if that's really true. So I'm going to ask Mark, is it true that wolves will often eat the belly of its prey while they're still alive? No. Yeah. Wolves will run. Wolves will, it, it's, it's another thing about the internet. There's all these so spiritual and, and I like wolves. Don't get me wrong, but they're wolves. And um, there's the pictures of the, the pack of wolves and they say the older are in front. So they don't get left behind. And these are the alphas and all that. That's a pack of malarkey. If a, if a wolf gets weak in a wolf pack, they eat it. It's, it's certainly um, the law of tooth and fang out there, that, and they're starving to death. Not too many years ago, maybe eight, seven or eight years ago, we had a super cold snap come through early <laughs> before there was a bunch of snow. And so the, the, the wolves chase their prey by falling through the snow, and they'll pull at their flanks. Sometimes they'll get up beside them and bite their tongues off. So they bleed to death. They're just, they're, they're just, you know, they're not thinking critically. They're using instinct and bringing down something to eat. And yeah. if there's no snow, they can't catch up as easily to these moose and caribou and, and, and big animals that are their prey that sustain them through the cold. And so they start to starve. And so without any snow to snow, slow down the moose, they, the wolves came into town and started eating dogs. And we lost on that, uh, not us personally, but Eagle River, the little town that I live in or near, uh, had seven dogs snatched, right? Some of them right out of their, like walking down the trail with their masters, you know, just eaten up. Uh, and, wow. and when I say eaten, I mean, the, you read an article in the paper and say, and there was a bunch of movement in the bush and we went over and there was a collar left or an ear. So, you know, it's, it's Alaska is brutal and wolves are, um, trying to make a living out here and it's a hard place to make a living and they will, uh, absolutely do that. Oh man. Well, we're going to start to wrap it up. And before I get to rapid fire questions, I have this one question I like to ask writers, uh, such as yourself and, and it has to do with the best piece of advice you'd offer my listeners who are either considering becoming a writer or maybe in the midst of launching a career. Do you have that single piece of wisdom from on high yeah um it's 
kind of touches on what I said before is, uh, and my wisdom such as it is, is just what I do. And what I do is I, I read with a pencil. I find books that I really like and I read critically. And I don't mean like I'm critiquing the book. I read it like I'm studying it. So if I have a, a for instance, a copy of Ken Follett's Man from St. Petersburg, it's highlighted and, and marked. And here's the first, I'll, I might go into a bookstore and not buy any books, but I'll read the first sentence of 50 just to see, okay, here's a line, especially in this day and age when everybody's playing video games or reading on their phones. If, if you don't hook them by the first paragraph and really the first sentence or two, you've lost them. And I wrote several stories for Boys Life magazine, the Boy Scout magazine, and we would, the editor and I would kind of joke back and forth. If you don't hook them on the first, you know, these are 13, 14, 15 year old boys. And if you don't oh, hook yeah. them on the first sentence and they're really the first sentence has to be about death or poop or they won't even read, you know? Um, so I would just say, read, read with a pencil and really study what you're reading and read voraciously. And then don't be afraid to make mistakes. Just write. Yeah. That's a great, I, I agree with both pieces and I, the, 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 the second part there is, you know, I think we're sometimes so, especially with this huge competition we're all facing because everybody thinks they've got a book in them. I say, you know what, just throw it out there. Give it your best shot. And if that one doesn't work, do it again. And if you're willing to do it again and again and again and again, then that's really what you're going to do. And you're going to you're going to get better automatically. You're going to put in your 10,000 hours, right? That's true. That's true. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for that. And, of course, it is time for rapid fire questions. The first one's super easy. Plotter or pantser and why? Oh, plotter. I'm not smart enough to be a pantser. In fact, <laughs> in fact, I have a theory that people that are that are say they're pantsers are are lying and they're just super smart and plot it all in their head and then spew it out. <laughs> nice. All right. Uh, music or silence when you write? Silence. Yeah. Uh, I am curious though. Sub note: What do you listen to when you're just? Maybe you're driving along the back roads or you're just chilling out. What, what's the kind of music does Mark Cameron listen to? I, I like country, like old, older country, like George Strait. Charlie and then, Pride. And then super old. Yeah, Charlie Pride and yeah. Johnny Cash. And I like, yeah. I like that. The classics, yeah. yeah. All right. What are the two things you are never without and you can't use cell phone on this? Something to make fire, uh -huh. a light, and a pocket knife all the time. In fact, I challenge all the youth around here, the Boy Scouts, my kids' friends, kids at church. They can come up to me anywhere except in the airport. Used to, they could do it in the airport because I had a badge and carried it everywhere. Sure. But uh, they can challenge me and come up and say, have you got your EDC, your everyday carry? And I have to produce a pocket knife, the small light, and a, my little Zippo lighter, which is orange, by the way. It's not tactical. I used to have a really cool tactical green one and then another tactical green one, and then another tactical green one. And they're somewhere out in Bush, Alaska, where I set them down and couldn't find them in the dark. So, yeah. Yeah. So always, always those three things. I, uh, it's, it's cool. You asked that because he's reaching them. for it now. I have them. I have my lighter with me right now. There it is an orange yeah. Zippo. And, uh, and what, and you said some kind of a light, right? So yeah, I have a little, a very pull small that one out. light. I have a very small, it's kind of embarrassing. So, I have a I have a little light, little 
can't remember who makes this one. Streamlight, maybe. Uh huh. It's just a. It's very bright, but it's just a three A. And then I'm actually also never without a pencil sharpener because I write a lot with pencil. And then something to save my work. And Look then, at you. <laughs> and then a knife. And then the knife. There it is. Oh, bam. Yeah. Yeah, that's not legal. A, not legal in all states, but well, it's legal where you are. Yeah. All right. All right, Mark, you and a pal are flying over the frozen tundra of, let's say, Alaska, when suddenly he passes out for some reason. He's still alive, but he's passed out. You don't know it. And you have to land. You have to land the plane safely. Now, however, because you're over unknown territory and not 100% sure which is land and which could be a frozen lake, and a thunderstorm looms on the horizon, what does Mark Cameron do? After fervent prayer, or I should say during prayer, um, yeah. um, you know that they, the pilots have a saying, you, you uh, aviate, uh, navigate, then communicate. So you got to fly the plane first. So yep. I, I'm, a, I'm a big believer in saying a prayer, but I'm going to be trying to fly the plane before I do it. Now, as a young kid that wanted to be James Bond someday, I took flying lessons. I never became a pilot, but I, I have about 19 hours of flying. So I could... I could get that plane on the ground in one singular giant fireball. It would be all together when I crashed it. Um, um, yeah, I would just assess the situation and, and fly the plane. I would, I would want to save my friend, but not going to save him much if I'm doing CPR while we auger into the mountains. Yeah, but, no. But, you know, try all the way to the ground. That's, that's what I would say. I probably wouldn't be able to do it, but I'd sure try my best you know that should almost be a t-shirt try all the way until you get put into the ground <laughs> yeah well i i was fortunate i i wasn't there to listen to it but i was in alaska when it happened and there was a young pilot one of the the, the charter services down in southeast alaska and he was he was flying in a i can't remember a little navajo or something a little a little uh single engine six person uh piper and his engine blew and his, his windscreen got completely covered up with oil. And so he's flying along and he's, you know, using instruments, but he's a newer pilot. He's got a bunch of, of uh, passengers in the back and this is a small plane. So when you fly with, with a, a plane that small, if you're a passenger in the back and the pilot panics, you can, you can smell his urine, you know, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's uh, you're close. And so he's on the radio, he's talking to, uh, control they're trying to find a place to land but he's in the mountains and over water i mean southeast alaska is just a, a series of of trees and rocks and waves in the tape he's you hear him talking he's he's getting more and more agitated more and more nervous and then he gets very calm and he says tell my mom i love her and that's like all right he's he's given up and this coast guard helicopter pilot appeared off his wing and talked to him and talked him, calmed him down, chatted with him. I mean, this guy is a hero. He is an incredible wow. dude. And he said, I've got you a patch of beach. And, I, and I'm paraphrasing here. Basically, yeah. he pointed him towards a patch of beach and said, all right, here's what you're going to do. You're going to slip that plane sideways so you get a look out the window. And then, right when, and then you'll fly it down, slipping sideways. And then right when you get to the ground, straighten up and you'll be fine. And he talked him through it as if he was like a wow. automatic pilot. And so 
Um, and we flew over that spot later in our plane and looked at the, the place where that young pilot who, and I don't want to take away from the pilot, incredibly skillful what he did along with the help of that, uh, that uh, Coast Guard helicopter wow. pilot. Pretty cool story. So I would, hopefully I wouldn't panic so much. Hopefully I would think of that and say, all right, maybe there'll be a helicopter pilot come here and talk me down. Man, that's a fantastic story. And I had just enough uh, training myself. I'm about 10, 12 hours in. Um, and I, it was years and years ago. But, you know, if you can just l let it do its natural gravity and make sure mm -hmm. the tail touches first, yeah. gravity will just do everything else. People always think, oh, my gosh, if I, if I go down like this, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill myself. No, yeah. just let the back touch and it will it will automatically just drop and fifth and final hollywood has just bought your entire arliss cutter series congratulations man you're buying the first round and uh, wants to turn it into a streaming series mark mm -hmm. now this is a three-part question i'm going to break it down real easy who would you like to see play arliss if you could have any say in it we've talked about this quite a bit there's uh i mean i th th this kind of stuff is in the works all the time with these sorts of books so i've been chatting with producers for years you know how hollywood is oh it's, yeah we talk about that all the time so we've looked at um you know the big name writers you know chris pratt who now is playing in uh um jack carr's jack series Car, yeah. and and uh i think i actually think a lot more about lola and wanting to have a a real polynesian woman play lola so yeah 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 not that you touched a nerve but we've been talking about this really hard <laughs> over the last few months so yeah and it's funny I, I, something just popped into my head when you were talking about when you said that you know what the what the viewers are interested in i know that when um tom cruise was playing jack reacher everyone's like ah, but he doesn't fit the mm -hmm. thing and then this new guy comes in and i'd love to impress you by knowing his name and i don't recall it but he comes in mm -hmm. and plays jack reacher and you're like you instantly buy it oh yeah yeah He's a reacher yeah exactly that's the that's what you want somebody that i mean i describe cutter as being 6'3", 240. Yeah. Um, you know, I've known some cutters in my life and, and it's, uh, there, there's a line in the book, you know, we, 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 we kind of joke all the time because there's a line in the book, um, where he's getting his armed boarding pass. It's not in this book. I think it's in two books, maybe stone cross or open carry. Uh, he's, in the Anchorage airport, when you're in the marshal service, the badge is on the outside. And so you just show them your badge. They look at the inside and then they fill out some paperwork and you get on the airplane with your firearm. And the flight attendant, I mean, the gate agent is kind of flirting with Cutter. And she says, marshals, that's like, and these are conversations I've had my whole career. Uh -huh. Marshals, you're, you, you don't look like Tim Oliphant, you know, like unjustified and, and, Cutter kind of smiles at her and says, uh, I'm not trying to be Tim Oliphant. Tim <laughs> Oliphant's trying to be me. And so we joked about what if, because uh, Josh Dumel is always getting confused with Tim, Tim Oliphant and the Marshal and Justified. So kind of joked about getting him to, to play uh, Cutter, just that I think there's too much baggage going along with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. An incredible show like Justified. Hey, uh, here's a here's part B. Would you like to play a cameo role in this aforementioned series? And if so, what would it be? 
Oh, man on street, man at bus stop. It'd be, <laughs> it'd be fun. My wife wants to play a cameo role, but I, uh, people always say, are you Cutter? Was that you, you know, during your career? I said, no, I'm, if you watch me on social media, I'm grumpy. There's no yeah. doubt that I'm yeah. the grumpy character with my grandkids. But uh, yeah, you'd be the, uh, you want to be uh, Alfred Hitchcock stepping on the bus and uh, yeah. fill in the blank. Yeah. Or, okay. or crazy, crazy bearded dude in the Alaska bush. <laughs> And the last one, what's the one thing you see Hollywood continue to get wrong all the time, but never seems to change it? And I've had a similar conversation with some other writers. I think the thing that, I, that always chuckles me is the way guns make a noise like they're, the slides being racked when somebody draws them or points them like, I didn't do anything to that gun. But that's, that's the Foley editor adding sound because the director said we need a a gun sound right there. So I get why they're doing it. It's such a visual medium, but sure. guns don't rattle like that. Or I wouldn't, I wouldn't carry them around. Yeah. If they did rattle, you'd go, I'm going to yeah. trade this in boss. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> hey, one more last thing before we wrap. And I have to mention this because, and this is going to be interesting to you. I, I learned about you. It could be interesting. Could be a little bit embarrassing. I learned about you when I was researching, and this is going to sound like a commercial because I'll probably turn it into one, but I Good. was researching a company when I was setting up to be a writer. I'm like, you know, if, I, if I'm going to play with the big boys and I'm going to look like one of the big boys, then uh, I can't keep doing websites myself because A, it takes forever and B, it's getting hacked and blah, blah, blah. So you were the very first person. I don't even know how this happened, but I went to authorbytes.com. They're great. They're awesome. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and I saw you first and, uh, that was an example that popped up. And then as I inquired about it, they said, Oh, if you like Mark Cameron, check out these. And I checked out Mark Graney, Brad Taylor, and Don Bentley. And Simon Gervais. Yeah. And all those. Simon, yeah. Mm -hmm. And by then I was hook, line, and sinker because it, it had the look and the style that I wanted. So I, I think it's interesting that I discovered you via your website way before I discovered your books. No, that, that's really cool to hear because I, I sing their praises all the time. I, they, they know you can put together a really good website, but knowing what readers need, you know, book, what you really need is a, a novelist. So they'll, I'm happy to to pay them, they earn their money to, with the way they put it together. And they're constantly, you know, looking at what kind of feedback and, okay, we need to optimize this for phones because that's where people are looking at your website. And yeah, I, I can't say enough good about author bites. Yeah. It does sound like a commercial. We're receiving no pay or discount on this, but, but uh, I can't say enough good about them. Well, actually, you neither you or I are actually directly getting anything, but because, and you're going to love this, they're now a sponsor of the show. Well, I'm glad. I mean, I'm not. I hope you do, but I'm not getting anything. Yeah. I, I didn't know you were going to bring this up. That's my disclaimer. But no, they, and, uh, they're and I, awesome. And I, the only reason I'm bringing it up is because as I'm researching your books, I'm going, uh, oh, that's right. I found this website like almost two years ago because there's a very specific layout. But anyway, so AuthorBytes liked my um, talking about it so much. They said, we want to sponsor you. So uh, that's cool. Yeah. And here's well, yeah, that, that's good because it, it does two things. It, you know, helps, well, three things. It helps you, your show. It helps them. But as a writer, more important to me, it sends other writers and 
And it makes a world of difference when you have a, a, a professional landing page when people are looking for you. It certainly does. 100%. And uh, these days with hacking the way it is, these guys oh, stay yeah. on top of it. And I've been hacked yeah. before. And uh, so here, here for the last plug, anybody who listens to this today and says, hey, maybe maybe I'll do like uh, Mark and Dave are doing, uh, they're going to give you uh, three months free when you sign a one-year contract. So Very worth it. Totally Boom. worth it. Yeah, I, I heard about them from Mark Graney. So it, that's the way these things work, just uh, word of mouth. Well, and Mark, both of you guys have, uh, and Don, I mean, all of you guys, all of us, they're just, they know how to make it look right. And, uh, and folks, Cold Snap, the book that we've been talking about today, and it'll leave you frigid. This is going to drop next Tuesday, uh, the 26th, so be sure to get a copy today. And if you'd like to learn more about my pal Mark, just visit markcameronbooks.com, thanksauthorbytes.com, <laughs> or follow Twitter. Uh, and, and Mark's getting good at this folks So give him a little bit of time, but he's, he's going to be a Twitter maniac before you know it. And he's at Mark Cameron one. You're, you're actually saying, I don't know, Dave, I've got yeah, matter yeah, of fact, yeah. hold on a second. I've got you pulled up over here. You've got 861 followers. Yeah. See, there you go. 861 <laughs> as opposed to a bajillion. I don't, uh, those poor 861. I'm excited because I'm at the very top of your feed there because you're, you're, you're uh, saying you're looking forward to this. So I hope, yeah. I hope the show was everything you hoped it would be Mark. You know, it was great fun because you asked different questions. It, we're going into a book like this. We'll have a dozen of these and a lot of times it'll be the same thing, but uh, people have, I think people are getting used to zoom and, and remote interviews and learning. And you've certainly done a great job. This has been fun. Well, thank you, Mark. And you know what? I, I, I did radio for 25 years and I always, I had producers that worked with me and I said, I always said this, I said, give me just a, a note or two. Don't give me too much because the way I find uh, an interview being fascinating is to have a little bit of knowledge, but let you tell the stories, yeah. the people who go. So tell me, Mark, when you were a U.S. Marshal back in, <laughs> you know, who cares, man? Just yep, tell, exactly. let's tell stories. Yep, exactly. Thank you. I appreciate your time. Thanks for doing this. Man, I hope we can stay in touch. I have a feeling, you know, you you give off this feeling like we've known each other forever. That's my tactical grandpa. That's just me. <laughs> and always carry an orange Zippo, folks. <laughs> That's, right. <laughs> That's right. All right, Mark, you take care of yourself. And thank you again for joining us on the Thriller Zone. Hey, thanks for your time. It was great fun. How much fun was that? Mark Cameron. Did he strike you the same way he struck me? Kind of like you've known him forever. That's how I walked away feeling. Great guy. Super talent. I mean, anybody who's writing Tom Clancy novels, uh, you got to be on top of your game. So once again, thank you, Mark. Now on our next show coming up on Monday, a bonus episode. This gal right here, Alma Katsu, Red Widow is the book. It is a stunning performance. And she's like six books in, but I'm telling you, uh, bam, she's coming up on Monday. And I'm looking ahead to the next week, which is Peter Ferris, the devil himself. Oh, man, that is going to wrap up the month of April. And we have a heck of a May coming up. Can I share with you just a couple? Joshua Hood is going to be on the show. 
Tori Eldridge, one of my favorite guests, is going to be on the show. May Cobb is coming up in May. May was my very first guest in June of last year. So we're very excited to be celebrating our one-year anniversary, basically, with May Cobb with her book, My Summer Darlings. Also, we're going to squeeze in a little bonus episode with Dave Chesson, the Kendallpreneur, uh, as we go off a little bit the beaten path to learn some inside secrets into the world of publishing. Frank Zaviro is coming up in May. Uh, who else? Well, there's a couple of biggies, like biggies, but uh, we have not 100% confirmed them yet, so bear with me. And I would look into June and July, but I don't want to share all my candy in the lobby, if you know what I mean. <laughs> I do want to take this one brief moment to say thank you for the two sponsors that are supporting our show. AuthorBytes.com, the web host for authors, and Writer's Block Coffee, which uh, you'll see me sipping on coffee almost all during the show. Writer's Block, oh man, these guys hit it out of the ballpark. Um, and I don't want to turn this into a commercial, but I'm going to tell you this one thing. When you get fresh roasted beans... I mean, you put in your order on a Monday, the order's probably placed on a Tuesday, maybe a Wednesday. It's roasted right then and turned around and shipped to you. Once you get it that way, you'll never do it any other way. 15% off your first order, by the way. Okay, there, I did it. Folks, thank you so much for joining me uh, once again for another episode of The Thriller Zone. Is I hope it's evidenced how much I love the show and how much I love bringing it to you. You can always drop us an email at thethrillerzone at gmail.com. Uh, you can also go to our website, thethrillerzone.com. We're now officially youtube.com slash thethrillerzone. So we finally got all of our branding uh, act together. But we love hearing from you. Drop us an email. Go by the podcast channels uh, and leave a review. Five-star reviews uh, doesn't hurt. Uh, if you got the time, it'd be great, but we just love hearing from you. And if there's something on the show that you'd like to hear more of, or there's a guest that you'd like to, man, David, here's a great idea. Send it to me. Uh, if you're an author who would like to be on the show, we book well in advance, and I need to get your books well, well in advance in order to be able to read them and talk about them. But uh, yeah, it's all doable. <laughs> We're here to serve. And uh, I love my job. So anyway. Dave Temple here. We'll see you next time on another episode of The Thriller Zone. There was a time I built my own websites. <laughs> I was pretty good at it. But it took a lot of time and a lot of energy. And it was not without challenges. I mean, I built them on Squarespace and TypePad and WordPress and GoDaddy and Wix. But in the end, it was kind of more hassle than it was worth. And then then when it came time to get hacked, I, I, I just had it. Then on top of this, when I decided to become a full-time writer and I, I said, you know, I need a website that shows who I am and does it well, and I don't have to worry about it, and they take care of everything, including getting hacked, which has never happened, ever. I researched some of the biggest guys in the industry. 
a lot of those names you know. I wanted to play with the big boys too. So you know what I did? I found the company authorbytes.com. Authorbytes.com takes care of everything 24-7. It has been delightful. And fortunately, to help pay for the show, they've become a sponsor. They did it last month. They liked the results so well, they're coming back for another round. And I'm pretty excited about it. If you will use the code THETHRILLERZONE, they will simply give you three months free with a one-year contract. What? Yes, there is still free in the world. Sign up for a one-year contract. Get three months free using the code THETHRILLERZONE. And do like I did. Let the professionals handle it. Slide the keyboard away. Forget about the software and the updates and the plugins and all that craziness. Let the professionals do it. Have peace of mind. Authorbytes.com. The Thriller Zone has been presented by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller.